Okay, so today, um, let me give you a, an overview of what we plan to cover. Well, I'm not going to actually go through all of this, but in the back of the of the room here on the chairs, if you haven't picked one up, there's a copy that looks like this of all the weeks that we plan to cover and the subjects that we plan to cover week by week. So if you haven't picked one of those up, you're welcome to do so. Now, I don't promise that we will follow this uh, precisely. Um, I'm going to try uh, for the most part, but um, we may branch out or some of these uh, weeks may bleed into another week or we may cover more in one week than we plan to. But that gives you a, a pretty good idea as to the material that we plan to cover. So if you uh, want to get a copy of that, you're welcome to do so. And just one quick comment on that is that um, on the on week, see, week uh, six, which will be the first week of January, the first Sunday in January, I won't be here. I'll be out of town. And so uh, one of the other brothers here is going to be taking that class. And what will be, be covered on that day is uh, yet to be determined. So... Um, you can make note of that. Okay, so as you can see from uh, this quote from Luke, the angel who announced the birth of John the Baptist indicated that part of his job, uh, what his role was, his mission, was to make ready for the, for the Lord a people prepared. He's to prepare a people for the Lord, and we talked about that uh, last week. So... <clears throat> Uh, just by way of quick review of one key com, uh, uh, concern, and that is in uh, the Baptist 1689 confession that we hold to for the most part, in chapter 1, paragraph 10, we read this, and I am quoting this time from the, uh, the modern English version. It's not a whole lot different, but a little bit different, maybe a little bit more easy to uh, eas easily follow. And it says this, the Supreme Judge... Supreme Judge for deciding all religious controversies, and that includes any controversy with regard to the practice of baptism. The Supreme Judge for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, human teachings, and individual interpretations, and in whose judgment we are to rest, is nothing but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. In this scripture, our faith finds its final word. And so we want to emphasize that strongly, and that is that the word of God, the scriptures, are our final authority, and it's what we have held and we have taught many times, sola scriptura. This is the one of the watchwords of the Reformation, which we hold to, the five solas. And so... We want to emphasize this right at the beginning, and that is that the scriptures are our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Now, with regard to um, baptism, moving on from what we talked about last time, if you have your, your chart that has the blanks in it, we're going to make sure you've got the information in the chart that uh, you're supposed to have there. So if you look at that, in the first column of the chart, we talked last time about John's baptism. And what did we say was the heart of John's baptism? Okay. Repentance. Okay, so this is John's baptism of repentance. 
John's baptism of repentance. And under the, um, the first column heading, the first point that we made last week is that John's baptism established the necessity and repent, that John's baptism established the necessity of repentance, which includes two elements. What are those two? Repentance includes, what was that? Okay, or bearing fruit, fruit bearing, and turning from sin, confession of sin. So, confession of sin, John baptized them as they confessed their sins, and he only baptized those who were bearing fruit. And when that occurred, whenever one was baptized, and it says in Luke chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 7, he therefore, or verse, yeah, he therefore began saying to the multitudes, oh, no, I'm sorry, verse 3, and he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so as they confessed their sins, they were forgiven of their sins. And so in your chart there, John's baptism of repentance then denotes the fact of purification and forgiveness granted to the repentant. The fact of purification, and, and purification is just a, another way of saying cleansing from sin. So the fact of purification or cleansing from sin, and the idea of using a water connotes well the idea of cleansing. So there's the cleansing from sin, there's, there's the forgiveness of sin that is granted to the repentant. And we saw that John's major role is one of preparation. And we talked about that last week, that he is there to prepare the way for the Messiah. Both he and Jesus preached the message, repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. And so John comes along and he is preparing the way for the Messiah. His place in the history of redemption was a critical place. What, was, what is his place in the history of redemption, historically? Okay, so he is the last Old Testament prophet. He stands at the line of demarcation between Old Testament and New Testament. He is the one who is, as it were, standing at the line looking forward. His, his message is a forward-looking one. Looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, who was born six months after he was. And he is announcing the coming of the Messiah, the coming king. And so... John's mission is to prepare the people for the Messiah, for the Messiah's kingdom, and for the king himself. That's his mission. We talked about that last week. So it's one of preparation. And then we said also last week that it is one of spiritualization. That's also, I don't know if it's a blank on your chart here. Yeah, okay. So the second blank on your chart is one of spiritualization. And here John prepares the people spiritually. Well, that is kind of obvious from what we've already said because <clears throat> he preaches a baptism of repentance. This is a spiritual preparation of their hearts. By preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, he's preparing the people spiritually to receive the Messiah. They cannot receive their Messiah if they don't repent of their sins. This Messiah is one who requires the forgiveness of sins and the repentance of sin. So he 
prepares the people spiritually by preaching the repentance, preaching repentance for forgiveness sins, and by also baptizing only the repentant. So John the Baptist is not baptizing just anybody. He baptizes only those who are repentant and who bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. But typically you might say, well, what about belief? What about faith? Did he preach faith too? Uh, Was it just a matter of repentance? Yeah, he also preached faith. And so he pointed the people to faith in Jesus, the one who is mightier than he, as he calls him, the one who is to come after him. And we see that easily uh, from what Paul says in referring back to John's ministry. In Acts chapter 19, in verse 4, the Apostle Paul is talking to some of the disciples of John, <clears throat> and Paul says this with regard to the message and the mission of John. He says, uh, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to, what? Believe. Believe. In the one who is to come after him, that is, in Jesus. So John preached repentance, but that repentance did not exclude faith. It also included faith in the one who is to come after him, that is, in Jesus. And so he points to the Lamb of God and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You're to believe in him. You are to follow him. And so... This is John's baptism of repentance, and uh, we've seen then, last week we saw the idea of um, preparation for the Messiah. We saw the idea of spiritualization. His baptism connotes both of those, preparing for the coming Messiah and a spiritual preparation. Now today we're going to move on and talk about the third area, and that is what I'm calling universalization universalization. And by the way, let me say, the, the chart that I am giving to you, um, I told you last week that uh, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, I just learn from smart guys. Well, I have a, a, a really good friend who um, has been a pastor for over 40 years, and uh, at one time was, was my pastor, and he wrote a THM thesis at Westminster Seminary on the mission of John the Baptist, and so uh, I am using a lot of uh, the material that comes from that as well as other materials. But probably, I would say probably that chart that I gave you, probably half of it is at least from the material that I got from him. So I want to give uh, credit for that. His name is Greg Hofstetler. He's a pastor in uh, Pennsylvania, and he happens to be the cousin of Shar Waldron. So good friends of ours. Uh, Anyway, so universalization. So these terms that I'm using, these four terms here, uh, are coming from his thesis. But I think they are uh, accurately describing what the scriptures teach. Okay, so universalization. What do I mean by universalization? Hang on here. By universalization, I do not mean universal atonement. (laughs) I don't mean that everybody gets saved. What, uh, what this has reference to is the fact that John's message is going out to, ultimately going to go out to all the nations. Now, it is not so explicit in John's ministry. It is more implicit, and I'm going to show you that. But it is there, I believe. And 
So what John is, is going to hint at in what he teaches is that the inclusion of the Gentiles was always part of um, God's plan, and also the inclusion of Gentiles is actually always part of God's, uh, the history of, of Israel. The Gentile who wanted to become a part of God's people could do so by getting circumcised, get circumcised, Exodus 12, and they could participate in the Passover meal, the sacrificial system, they could become landowners within Israel with the rights and, and privileges and, and responsibilities of, an, of a native Israelite. They could uh, have an inheritance within Israel. But all that was within Israel, and you had to join Israel by being circumcised. <clears throat> but they could do that, and Gentiles could do that under the Old Covenant. But what was different now, what I believe is different now in this transition period of John, as John is transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what is different now is that the good news is going to all the nations, the Gentiles, and it does not require them to get circumcised and to become part of the earthly nation of Israel to be in the kingdom of God and part of God's people. As a significant change. This aspect is not fully developed by John the Baptist because it's actually too early in the history of redemption, the story of Salutis. It's a little bit early in the history of redemption for it to be fully developed. Uh, Jesus hadn't uh, yet come and died and been resurrected from, from the grave. And yet I believe that it is, is there in seed form in John's message and in John's ministry. Now, as I said, it was John's or God's plan from the beginning for John's mission to move in this direction. And baptism, I believe, John's baptism points in that direction. So let's look at some proof of this. <clears throat> uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Would somebody look that passage up? We might want to read it a couple of times as we go through here and be ready to read that um, for me as we proceed at maybe more than once. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Anybody have that for me? Okay. Patrick, would you read those? 3 through 5. Yes. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain of broad valleys. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, now this is going to have some more ultimate fulfillments, but it has at least a proleptic fulfillment, I believe, in the ministry of John the Baptist, because the glory of the Lord is being seen in Jesus, not the full glory is going to be manifest ultimately, but Christ is coming. And notice this, this little phrase, all flesh. All flesh will see it. I believe there's a little hint here of what uh, is happening in John's ministry. Okay, let's uh, let's also look then at Zacharias. Who's Zacharias? Is it, what's his relationship to John? To John, his dad. Okay, is this Zacharias, high priest, and he prophesies concerning his own son in Luke chapter one. And he says something about the Abrahamic promise in that. Look with me then at Luke chapter 1, verse 73, and let's read. And I'm reading from the NASB, so if you have the ESV, um, you'll, your, your passage will be you know, pretty close. 
But notice what he says. Let's go to verse 72. He says that God is visiting his people through the ministry of John the Baptist and ultimately through the ministry of Christ, through the coming of Christ. God is coming to visit his people. And in verse 72, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. What was the oath that he swore to Abraham? In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Yes, in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. In all the families of the earth. Now how does the Apostle Paul treat that particular quotation? Go with me to Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And remember I told you, bring your Bibles. We want to keep... I want you to get involved in, your, in the word yourself. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Somebody read that for me. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Okay, hold on just one second. It is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Jews would have said it's those who are circumcised. Okay, next verse. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed. Okay, so Paul goes back to this promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And he pulls out this phrase that in you, Abraham, all the families, families in in Genesis, nations, by Paul, in Galatians, and you, all the nations of the earth, are going to be blessed. Not just the Gentile nation, not just the Israelite nation, but all the nations. The Gentile nations are going to be blessed in you. And so we see this universalization happening in the prophecy that Zechariah makes with regard to his own son, saying his son has come to announce the one who is going to visit us and accomplish the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Zechariah also has more there. Zechariah's prophecy of the shining light. Look with me then at Luke chapter 1 again. Uh, verses 76 and 79. Luke chapter 1, verse 76 and 79. And he's and we read, And you, child, here is Zechariah talking about his own son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the, his ways, that's his job, his mission, prepare for the Messiah, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies. I need to go on down to verse 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, and there's a reference to Malachi, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. So there's going to come a shining on those who sit in darkness. Now, where does this come from? Do you know where that comes from? Isaiah 9. Okay, you can turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 9. 
in verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, he's quoting that passage. Now you have to kind of stick with me on this. Isaiah 9.1 But there will no more be gloom for for her, her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of, land of Naphtali. Those are the inheritance areas in the land of Palestine for those two tribes. He treated them with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles or the nations. Okay, so he's going to be in this area, this Galilee. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And thou shalt multiply the nation, and thou shalt increase their gladness. And you know the rest of Isaiah 9 goes on to refer to, um, for the child will be, the child will be born to us. But I want you to just notice that there's reference here to Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. So there's this, again, there's this hint, there's this pointing of the direction of the Gentiles. John's mission was to prepare the way for the one who was to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, which included not only Israelites, but also the Gentiles. And then what about Simeon's prophecy, which occurs between the announcement of John the Baptist's birth and John the Baptist's uh, ministry beginning in chapter 3, but in chapter 2, we see Simeon's prophecy with regard to um, to Jesus. And, with, and in this particular case, he takes this same passage and talks and refers to Jesus with regard to it. To it. So look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 29 through 32. Luke 2, 29 to 32. Simeon has taken the Lord Jesus and his his arms, and um, and he blesses God, and he says, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen the salvation which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. <clears throat> so here, Simeon takes this same passage, and he highlights this idea, he, he quotes at least this notion that he is going to be a light to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. The Messiah comes through Israel. So he quotes um, Isaiah 9-2 as well. And all of this is a kind of a foreshadowing, a hinting of the fact that John is coming in his ministry to, to emphasize a kind of new universalization, a Going out of the message to all the nations, to all God's, to all the peoples. Um, so all of this points to a universal, meaning all nations, aspect to John's role. His message is both narrowing and it is broadening. It narrows in that. <coughs> It is only the repentant 
who'll receive the kingdom of God. But it broadens it as well because it says all the repentant who receive the kingdom of God, whether they are Israelites or Gentiles. So there's both a narrowing and a broadening aspect to John's, to John's message here. Now, I believe that that is what John is hinting at when he says, and, and look with me again at Luke chapter 3, when he says in, in verses, um, let's, let's look at uh, verses 7 and 8. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who are going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of come to wrath to come. Therefore bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up Abraham, to raise up children to Abraham. And Alfred Edersheim in his monumental work on the life and times of Jesus and the Messiah points out that in the Jewish mind, to be a child of Abraham, to be a descendant of Abraham, was a very significant thing. In fact, they even had they even taught that Abraham sat at the gates of Gehenna to uh, to help those Jews who would come to the gates of Gehenna and turn them away from hell so that they would receive glory. So to be to be a, a son of Abraham was to have a promise of the world to come. But John doesn't say that. John says, don't, don't look to Abraham. Don't look to your descendancy from Abraham. You have to repent. You want to be in the kingdom of God? You've got to repent. And it's only those who repent who are in the kingdom. And then I believe that is also why what, what is happening when John sees Jesus, <clears throat> and this was after he had baptized him, when John sees Jesus coming to him and he says to all the crowds, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel. Is that what he said? No. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so I believe there's this, this new universal aspect that is incorporated into John's message and in his baptism. Now, he didn't likely baptize a lot of Gentiles, although I can't say that he didn't baptize any. His message was primarily to the Israelite people. But at the same time, um, he also did highlight this fact that this was the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And it doesn't matter what your Abrahamic descent is. That's not going to get you into the kingdom. You've got to repent. And that is... The meaning, that is what is incorporated into John's baptism. So, there's this universalization aspect to John's ministry. Um, before we go on, I know that's kind of quick, but any questions? Kenny? Larry, then do you consider the, the people that came under the ministry and influence of John the Baptist that they were saved? Um, I think some of them were, but not all. Those who <laughs> those who repented and uh, confessed their sins and brought forth fruit to repentance, those were there were those were the genuine people of God. 
Now, they didn't have the full-blown understanding, when we say saved, they don't have a full-blown understanding of the Messiah as would come later after Jesus died and was resurrected and, and, and the message of the gospel went out from the apostles. But nevertheless, um, if they had genuinely repented, just like an Old Testament saint like David or one of the other Old Testament saints and generally repented of their sins and believed in Christ, uh, the, the coming one, the one who is to come, the one mightier than I, John calls him, um, then I do believe that they were um, they were genuinely saved. Hey, Larry. Yes. There's actually a group in southern Iraq that believes that they're the they're followers of John the Baptist and they baptize themselves every day. They believe that not necessarily the Messiah, but you know, Jesus is another prophet. Hmm. They claim that they follow the teaching of, of John and they claim to go all the way back to the original prophet. Yeah, there's some... Yes, Mark. This may not pertain to baptism, but it does pertain to John the Baptist. Later on in Luke, when he's in prison, he sends out asking if Jesus is the one. Does he have like a crisis of faith at that point, or is there, or should we look for another? Yeah, I think that <clears throat> with regard to John, um, just a, a kind of a quick answer. My best understanding at this point would be that um, there are a number of things that the Old Testament says with regard to the coming one, the coming Messiah. And there was a kind of judgment aspect, which was also included in John's message with regard to him, that he will be winnowing, that sort of thing. And that judgment aspect didn't happen immediately. It, hap- it happens later. But John, I don't think, he, he may not have understood the timing of when that was going to happen. And so he didn't see all that he might have expected to come at that point from the Messiah. And um, and so he he's he sort of wonders, you know, is this? It, 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 are you the one who's to come, or should we look for another? Um, and then Jesus' answer, which is in, which is interesting, is that go tell them what's happening. The gospel is being preached. The good news is being preached, and the lame are being healed, etc. And so he points to some fulfillment of an Isaiahic prophecies, prophecies from Isaiah, to demonstrate to John, yes. Um, your message was true. Okay, well, let's go to the fourth aspect of John's baptism. <clears throat> and that is what I'm going to call um, the reorganization of God's people. The reorganization of God's people. Now, <clears throat> in this regard... Previously, God's kingdom was manifested outwardly through Israel. God had dealt with the Israelites in a special way as a nation, as descendants of Abraham. A person, a male person anyway, could be circumcised by virtue of his birth to Israelite parents and thereby be included in the people of God in what was the outward manifestation of the kingdom of God under the Old Covenant. The infant's subjective faith or faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant did not matter. It was not a prior requirement. The requirement was ethnic, not ethical. God's kingdom and people were manifested outwardly. A Gentile could become part of the ethnic nation of Israel with all the rights and privileges of a native Israelite, but to do so, 
he had in effect to become a native Israelite by being baptized or by being um, circumcised and participate in all the various aspects of the life of an Israelite. So God's kingdom was outward, was manifest outward. It did not require one to have faith. You could be part of his outward manifestation of the kingdom just by virtue of circumcision and being having Israelite parents. But now, <clears throat> after because of the ministry of John the Baptist and, and transition in the ministry of John the Baptist to the New, Te- New Testament times, now God's kingdom will no longer be organized along ethnic lines. No longer is your descent from Abraham going to be enough for you to be part of the outward manifestation of God's people, for you to be part of God's people. There's this new um, reorganization of God's people happening under the ministry of John the Baptist. In other words, we're saying that spiritualization and universalization require reorganization. Okay, so the fact that only those who are repentant and who believe in the in the coming one, only those are baptized to spiritualization. And all of those who believe in him, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all the world. All of those who believe are the sons of Abraham, this universalization Those two aspects require a reorganization of the people of God. It's not going to be manifest in the way that it once was. So God's people are reorganized along different lines, spiritual lines or ethical lines. God's kingdom is first internal before it is external. That is the difference between the old or the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant. The new covenant is making a significant change or shift from membership being based on outward ethnic requirements to being based on internal spiritual requirements. And that establishes new criteria for entrance into the outward manifestation of God's people, such as we have here, you know, a church. This establishes new criteria for entrance into the outward manifestation of God's people. New covenant membership is based on an internalization of the law of God, not an external parentage or some external adherence to the requirement of circumcision. It's based on the law being written on the heart. Yes. Even in the old covenant, God made it clear in Deuteronomy that the circumcision that was out there, his whole intention was done. So, I mean, it's not like, and this thing is not being reorganized because the first was so successful. We're just changing the ships. (laughs) It's that the first, clearly for the people, they were disobedient. Their hearts were hardened. You know, God told them over and over and over again, it's true. Mm-hmm. And so the amazing thing is we'd be trying to establish another nation. Had God not already done it, we look back and see mm-hmm. that thing didn't work. 
Yeah. Like yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, God's wisdom and all of it is just amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, uh, you know, Hebrews 8. Dave? Is that the reason why there was so much resistance against John the Baptist and Jesus' teaching? Because people understood, or at least the religious leaders understood what they were trying to yeah. be known? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it was. It, they didn't like what he was saying. Is this where the Judaizers came in? Yeah, some of the Judaizers came in and they still wanted to require circumcision, like in Galatians. Um, and, of course, Paul says, if you require circumcision, you know, for salvation, you're anathema. Okay, so let's, uh, let me move on to here. <clears throat> so what happens then with regard to John's baptism? Thus, many circumcised Israelites were forbidden baptism. John forbade them even though they were legitimately part of the outward people of God. Understand that. All the the Pharisees that came to them, yeah, they they were descendants of Abraham. They had been circumcised. They were outwardly, legitimately part of the outward manifestation of God's kingdom, God's people. But John is changing that. It is no longer going to be the case. (coughs) And so... um, the faithful, uh, so let me, let me just give you a, um, John's baptism then, what, is, what it does is it creates a spiritual nation within, a spiritual people of God within the outward nation, the ethnic people of God. So we look at it like this. So here, <clears throat> here's the ethnic Israelites, this big circle, the ethnic Israelites, an outward nation, they were marked by circumcision, but within those, within that group, those who were repentant Israelites were the ones to be baptized and they were marked by baptism. So he creates a spiritual nation within the outward physical nation. There's a, a spiritual nation within the ethnic nation. And they're marked off by baptism. They were circumcised too, um, those who were Israelites, but they were marked by baptism. And so we see... John's ministry is one of transition. God's people then were de facto, that is by just by default almost, by in fact, being reorganized along spiritual internal lines with John's ministry. So this is the aspect of reorganization. Israel as an outward nation is no longer to be considered the manifestation of God's kingdom. That's significant. Israel as an outward nation is no longer to be considered the manifestation of God's kingdom. Now, if you're wondering, well, is that really right? <clears throat> Jesus himself makes this clear. Look with me in Matthew Chapter 21. And um, Matthew chapter 21. We don't have time to go through this whole thing. Let's see how much time I got here. Yeah, we got about three minutes here. So, maybe somebody in the future will go through this whole section. It's a, it's a very instructive section. I don't know if you can all see that in the back. Can you read that? It's the best I could do to get it large enough. But anyway... Let's read this. <clears throat> so here's Matthew's uh, account of 
an encounter between Jesus and the chief priests. It says, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I'll ask you one question. And notice where he turns. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Interesting that he goes back to the baptism of John and answering this question about his authority. The in John, what, what was John's message? What was John's role by God's own design? He was there to proclaim the coming Messiah. That's what his role was. And they said, well, do you, did you believe John? In other words, the baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And indeed he was. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he tells a parable of, two, of the two sons. Which one did the father's will? The one who said no and then went on and did it. The one who said yes and then he didn't do it. And so uh, the comment with regard to that parable is, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. You Pharisees, you people of Israel, the nation of Israel did not believe John. There were some who did. There were some who repented, of course. But as, an, as a whole, as a nation, they did not. You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Yeah, tax collectors and prostitutes, they repented of their sins. They confessed their sins and they brought forth fruit showing their repentance. They believed John, but the nation as a whole did not. Those who thought they were the those who would stand in the temple and pray, I'm glad, I thank you, I'm not like this tax collector. You know? And even when you saw it, Jesus says, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. You even saw this message and you saw tax collectors and prostitutes repenting of their sins and you still didn't believe. And then he tells the parable of the tenants of the vineyard um, where the, you know, has a, owner has a, has a vineyard and, and um, they send servants and they kill the servants. They send his son, they kill the son. <clears throat> and then what does Jesus say? They said to him, and Jesus says, well, what is he going to do? And they, these the Pharisees and those, they said, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And I believe this has to do not with just, not only with individual Israelites, but also with the nation as a whole. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected, the builders mean, you know, like the, the nation of Israel, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. The nation of Israel rejected the king. They rejected Jesus, but he has become the cornerstone. And what he is doing is marvelous. And so what does Jesus then say? Look at verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, you Jews, this Jewish nation that was at one time the outward manifestation of God's kingdom. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We're reorganizing God's people. It is no longer organized on outward external, ethnic lines. 
It is being organized on spiritual, internal lines. That is the heart of the new covenant. And John's message comports with that. And so, let me give you the conclusion. <laughs> okay, I'm a little bit over, so if you need to leave, go ahead and leave. But <clears throat> last paragraph. And I'm going to give you this conclusion that came from this THM thesis that I just wrote, told you about. In conclusion, John the Baptist had no small role in this latter-day reorganization of God's people. As a minister of transition for this historic shift, he announced the coming changes, defined the new terms of kingdom membership, actually ushered his respondents into the spiritual kingdom by preaching a baptism of repentance, and they would repent, confess their sins, and he would baptize them. So he ushered them into this new spiritual kingdom by means of his baptism and judicially served to prompt the abolition of the theocracy and thus the universalization of God's kingdom. Under the Messianic king, the Lord of the covenant, John served as the pivot of kingdom reorganization. Okay, time's up. I hope that's not too much for you to kind of... But think about it. Go, remember I said, go home, think about these things, study it yourself. <laughs>